read through chapter 2, verse 10. A review of last week, we found that Pharaoh, in an attempt to decrease the number of Israelites, had issued a series of decrees that would um, lead to the demise and the killing of every uh, male Hebrew that was born. And this last one here is found in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would give us insight into this passage and that you would, by your Holy Spirit, change us. We Think of those even now that are dealing with uh, the destructive power of water in uh, the Carolinas. We pray that you would protect them and help them. And we come to you today asking that you would, um, again, uh, give us your comfort, give us your spirit, give us your assurance that you do keep your promises, the promises you've made to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The most famous movie scene of all time uh, is probably not uh, Rocky, you know, calling out, yo, Adrian, or uh, perhaps another famous one is the last uh, lines of, um, um, what was that movie? Yes, the last, Gone with the Wind. I'm not going to quote those. Um, And then, or maybe Darth Vader, you know, Luke, I am your father. Uh, No, the most famous scene in any movie, it's been put in countless homages in many movies, is a scene from the movie The Battleship Potemkin, which uh, was uh, released in 1925 by the Russian uh, filmmaker Sergei Einstein. And in it, he, uh, this uh, pro-Russian revolution, anti-Tsarist movie, 
Um, it pictured on it these great steps in Odessa in what is now Ukraine, uh, 200 uh, steps going down to the, the waterside, uh, this massive uh, stairway, and on it were, at the top were Cossacks uh, standing in a line with their rifles, uh, with bayonets on the end of their rifles, uh, shooting at the populace on those steps as they were going down. And it, a scene of chaos ensues. Uh, people are running and falling over, uh, bloodied. And in the, in the middle of it, near the top of the steps, is a woman, a young woman, um, and her stroller, her carriage with her baby in it. <clears throat> and so she can't very well run down the steps. Uh, that would be too dangerous. And so she seeks to protect her child, and she is uh, horrifically shot, and she falls onto the uh, carriage, and the carriage begins to careen down the steps, bumping its way down, and then... There's one scene after the other, cuts away to somebody else getting shot, people running, mayhem ensuing, chaos. What's going to happen to the baby carriage? It continues to go down and down and down the steps. Will it make it safely? And near the end of the steps, again, horrifically, it, it launches forward uh, to throw the baby outward, and it cuts away before you get to see what happens. Chaotic, horrible event. Compare that to our scene today, a very different scene and ver a very similar scene. We have a baby, a baby who has a death penalty, a death decree issued on it, a Hebrew son. We have a mother uh, who puts her baby in a basket and puts the baby in the water, not the safest of locations. And yet, as we read through this passage uh, the feeling that you get and I get is entirely different. Now, most of us knew the end of the story, right, before the beginning. Uh, but I would say even if you know the scene from the battleship Potemkin and you watch it, your, your, your gut will be in knots, even if you know the outcome. Now, what's different here is what we have portrayed is that God is in the details. It's not chaos. God is here, and so everything is going to be okay. You know, the line from the hymn, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is your ruler yet. He is the ruler. He is in control. Now, what we found out last week was that God makes promises. He made promises to Abraham and his descendants that he would multiply his descendants. They would be numerous as the stars in the sky, and that even uh, against the best efforts of the Pharaoh to diminish and decrease the multiplication of the children of Israel, uh, he failed miserably and God succeeded. And what we find today is one very specific way in which he succeeded, God succeeded, was that this last edict of the king uh, that all of the Egyptians were to take the male babies of the Hebrews and throw them into the Nile River uh, was not successful, uh, particularly in this case uh, because Moses was saved. And what we'll find out in the course of the book of Exodus is Moses is the deliverer of the people. And so God keeps his second promise through Moses because we find that God said this to Abraham. The Lord God said to Abraham, and 
Genesis chapter 15. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God raises up leaders to benefit his people, to deliver his people. And oftentimes we find that those come about through very dramatic birth narratives. We find that, of course, with Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah was unable to have children. And in her old age, uh, she has a child, Isaac. He's the child of promise. And then we find Samuel is born to Hannah. Hannah wanting a baby, unable to have a baby. But God answers her prayers and brings a great prophet to the people of God. And, of course, the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Son of God who's born to the Virgin Mary. Nothing more dramatic and more miraculous than the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, God could answer his promises entirely on his own. God does not require human agents to do anything. In addition to that, God could use angels if he wanted to use angels. So why is it that God uses human instruments to accomplish his purpose? Because God wants to. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And so on one very simple level, uh, we don't know the mind of God, and God does what he wants to do. Another way of answering that question, though, is that God uses humans to deliver and to redeem and be intermediaries in prefiguring the ultimate human that will come to be the Savior, our Savior, the one who saves us ultimately from slavery to sin, slavery from death, slavery from the consequences, slavery to the devil, and instead brings us into that wonderful relationship with him and that wonderful promised land, eternal life, heaven, and one day the new heavens and the new earth. So God is producing, preserving, and preparing an intermediary between himself and his people. And that intermediary here is Moses. Now I say an intermediary because that is what we have emphasized here. We have the the priesthood of Moses is actually what is implied here. A priest is one that, it, that serves as a go-between God and man. We find that, that Moses, in fact, is both a priest and a prophet. But in this case, we read here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And so we find here that Moses was the son not only of a a Levitical uh, husband, father, but a uh, mother as well. To be a priest, according to the law, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And so here, this um, uh, this little detail is not something that is just put in for uh, sort of passing information. Moses is of the tribe of Levi, and he will be a priest, an intermediary. We read that in Psalm 99, verses 6 through 8. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. 
They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute they gave, that he gave them. O oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. We find here just in these few verses what a priest does. A priest, and Moses, stood in between himself and the people as an intermediary. And God preserved Moses for that particular purpose. And God has preserved you for a purpose as well. You don't have to be a leader. You don't have to be a priest. You don't have to be a Levite for God to preserve you for a purpose. Why do I know that? Because you're here. So God has preserved you for a purpose. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass, and you are here. So by definition, he's got you here for a purpose. Now, as I thought through the sermon, I thought of some near-death experiences that I experienced. Maybe you remember some of those yourself. I can think of at least three, one of which where I was almost run over by my senior pastor's uh, wife in a car when I was a child, uh, not due to her fault. She was uh, fortunately quick on the brake uh, when I slid underneath her car on my bike as I went around a corner. Uh, that was one, and there were a couple of others. But the reality is, who knows how many near-death experiences I had and was protected by the hand of God. And the same thing is true for you. In reality, the only reason why we're here every single day is by the grace of God. And so God has you for a purpose here today. So we're to live for Jesus. We're to allow him to direct us through his word. Famous quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. It's not true. God is in control. He is in the details. And so the, this intermediary between God and his people will be saved through water, and he will lead God's people through the water to salvation. You see that connection? <clears throat> Moses is going to be saved through water, and one day, again, spoiler alert for those that you don't know the end of the story, Moses leads the people of God through the water to salvation. Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. The only other use of the Hebrew word for basket here in our text is found in accounts of Noah and his ark. It's the same word for the ark, and it's not by accident that we have in the book of Genesis, the ark, the vehicle of salvation for Noah and his family, given that word, and the only other word is this papyrus little boat that is made for Moses, the vehicle of his salvation, both of which are uh, an ark covered with pitch. Genesis 6.14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Noah is saved through water. That is an image of salvation, an image of salvation that was to come. We find Peter making this statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So First Peter, we find that the, the image of the ark and Noah and his children, eight in all, they go through the waters of destruction. They fall on the ark, but they do not kill Noah. He's saved through the destruction of water, through the, through the water that falls on him and is not destroyed. And part of what baptism symbolizes when we sprinkle or pour water on the head of somebody coming for baptism is it not only symbolizes cleansing, which it does, but it also, according to this text, symbolizes being saved through destruction. The water falls on us, but we are saved through it. And you'll notice that he is put, Moses is put in a place of destruction. It, it's a strange place to put a baby, to save a baby, don't you think? Uh, sort of like this is the place that has been uh, stated that will be... Uh, the vehicle in which Hebrew male children are going to be killed. Sort of like hiding your baby on the electric chair. Not a particularly good spot, uh, at least on the surface. And yet, Moses is saved through destruction. We read of, again, that passage that I read earlier of Jesus Christ. Uh, Satan had his designs on him, and Jesus was saved from destruction. We read the, the words about the woman. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains. The agony of giving birth and another sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads, seven ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And she gave birth to the male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Why? Because this dragon was ready to devour the child. Now, if we read that in Revelation, we might think that Jesus was just whisked up to heaven. But the very next verse we read of the lamb who was slain. And so Jesus was saved after he was destroyed, in a sense, after he experienced the destruction that we deserve, the punishment, the judgment we deserve. And he wasn't ultimately because he was raised up from the dead. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was saved from death in the sense that Jesus defeated death through resurrection. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he is now uh, king of kings and lord of lords. And so we look ahead to a time when there will be destruction. A time when the earth will be destroyed, not by water, but it will be destroyed by fire. And the Apostle Peter uses that destruction of water and says that we will not be destroyed by water, but there will be a similar destruction by fire. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away and the roar of the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. He says, we wait for the hastening 
of the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, there's that word, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the children of Israel waited for the promised land, the land of Canaan, and it was a pointer to that ultimate land, that ultimate promise fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth. And Moses was saved in that moment from destruction through water, and he would, like Jesus, be the one who would save his people from the destruction. Moses through the water, Jesus through the fire. We will not be destroyed by the fire. Isaiah chapter 43, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. You get that? We're the people of God. And so no destruction will fall on the people of God because he has raised up a deliverer and an intermediary, the great high priest, who not only serves as the intermediary, but also the sacrifice, the sacrifice for our sins. And so as we mentioned last week, how is it that we are part of the family of God? How are we brought in to be that honored and loved and precious people of God? It's not because we earn it. It's because we place our faith in Jesus in his perfection, in his righteousness, in his life, in his resurrected life. And we admit that we are unworthy and unable and confess our sins and experience forgiveness. We're ushered into a new kingdom, a kingdom of light. And we look forward to that day when we will be saved through the destruction that will fall and will come into a new heavens and a new earth. And God is working all things together to fulfill his promise to save you from the slavery to sin, to save you from the wages of sin, and to bring you into that promised land. And in doing it, God doesn't sweat. God doesn't sweat in bringing all this about. Exodus chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would have been done to him, what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. There are seemingly insurmountable problems here. Contradictory things, random things. The baby is hidden by his parents for three years to protect the baby from Pharaoh's edict. In desperation, the baby is placed in a life-threatening place. The baby is discovered. Who's the baby discovered by? The daughter of the person that made the edict that all Hebrew male babies would be killed. I can imagine her coming down and saying, Oh, look, it's a Hebrew baby. 
how convenient he is actually here in this place where we are supposed to destroy Hebrew babies. In you go. That would be the reasonable outcome. But no, what happens? She has pity. She has pity. Pity. I have to think that the sister of Moses looking at the situation, when she sees Pharaoh's daughter coming to the banks, must be thinking, oh no, anybody but this. You know, there are some, some commentators that have theorized that actually that, that Moses' family specifically sought the spot so that the, uh, that the daughter of Pharaoh would actually find Moses. Uh, I find that uh, far-fetched because, as I said, this is the daughter of the person who made the edict to kill all Hebrew male babies. So Moses is in danger from the water. He's in danger from what the Egyptians would consider to be the god of the Nile. He's in danger from natural elements. He's in danger from human elements. And the outcome was absolutely unexpected. It would have been impossible for humans to work it out this way. It would have been unthinkable, but not for God. Because Pharaoh's daughter took pity on Moses. When then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And so with great relief, Moses' sister hears the comments of Pharaoh's daughter and rushes to the scene and says, I happen to know somebody that would be willing to nurse your uh, new adopted baby. And not only that, she agrees to it and then gives her wages. And this would be the first of a lavish payment that the Israelites were going to receive as they left Egypt. We find that, um, that, the, that the Israelites, as they left Egypt, were going to receive, um, in, a, in essence, war booty. And they were going to leave with their hands full, plundering the Egyptians. And this was the first of that which began. And we read in verse 10, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And we find that in Acts chapter 7, that that meant that Moses was raised the best education of his day. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deed. So instead of what might have been expected with all this danger, what happens? The baby is safe on the Nile. The baby is found by the daughter of Pharaoh. The baby's own mother nurses him. The baby became part of the Pharaoh's family. That is the Pharaoh that decreed that baby Hebrew boys were to be destroyed. I I just kind of imagine this conversation. Can you imagine? The daughter of Pharaoh comes home. Hey, Dad. Hey, look what I found. Can I keep him? Huh, huh? Can I keep him? Can I keep him? And Pharaoh just going, oh, the most powerful man on the planet, the most powerful empire on the planet didn't say no to his daughter. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened. I don't know exactly what took place, but I know this, that the redeemer of the Israelites, the the deliverer of the Israelites, was housed under the roof of the Pharaoh. 
amazing. Even the name Moses shows God working through circumstances, that he's in it. She named him Moses, verse 10, because I drew him out of the water. It comes from the Hebrew word to draw out. And so obviously it has reference to the past, drawing him out of the water, but it also has reference to the future, that Moses is going to draw his people out through the water. Interestingly enough, we find this connection between the place that Moses is put and the place that Moses is going to draw the people out through. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds. And we read here that she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant uh, women and took it uh, to the riverbank. And then in Exodus chapter 13, 18, we read of God's uh, leading the people out with Moses as their leader, but God led the people around by way of wilderness toward the Red Sea, which literally is translated the Sea of Reeds. So again, there's a connection there in the text that God is letting us know that this is no accident that Moses is drawn out of the water where the reeds are, and he is going to draw his people to safety through the sea of reeds. And not only that, the word Moses is similar to the Egyptian word for son. The Egyptian word for uh, son is uh, Moses. Moses. And so you have, for instance, Thut Moses is uh, the son of Thut. Ah Moses is the son of Ah in Egyptian. And so we find here that the Pharaoh's daughter is saying, This is my son, my adopted son. And God is saying, Pharaoh's daughter, you say, This is my son. This is the one I drew out of the water. But God says, You are my son. You are the one that I will use to draw out my people. Through the water. So no, no matter how seemingly improbable, no matter how difficult, no matter how inconceivable, nothing can stand against the promise of God. He will work it all together perfectly. So we read, for instance, some of these great and encouraging verses about God's sovereignty. Proverbs 21:30, "No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord." The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isaiah 46.9 through 11, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Jeremiah thirty-two forty-two. for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought upon, brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them <clears throat> all the good that I have promised them. And finally, reminding us of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God, the God of Abraham, your father. 
<clears throat> the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust <clears throat> of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done all that I have promised you. We have confidence God will keep his promises because God is in control. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Now, that doesn't mean that life is going to be totally sublime and stress-free. I want you to think a little bit about Moses' parents. Uh, How desperate did they have to be after three years to place him in a basket in the Nile River? Uh, It was certainly an act of faith. Um, In in the book of Hebrews, we read that they hid Moses as an act of faith, and yet it was also a desperate attempt. And think of Miriam, uh, who presumably it was Miriam, the sister of Moses, uh, who is watching the scene unfold and how stressful this is for her. And so God doesn't sweat. He doesn't sweat. He's in control. But we do. And it's not to say that it is not encouraging and it is not a help and it is not a comfort to the people of God that as we go through Uh, events in our life where we might be threatened to think that this is simply random activity or this might be simply be a matter of the devils in the details, not God in the details, but God is in the details. We read in that famous passage in Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. So God is working the details of your life out, not just Moses, not just leaders, not just priests. He is working all things together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. And first and foremost, what he's doing is he's conforming you to the image of of his son, Jesus Christ. He is doing it for your good. So, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is in the details. God will keep his promise. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign, that you are great, that you are almighty. And we thank you, Father, that we can be your children, uh, though we do not deserve it and we could never earn it. We receive it as a gift by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that you would nurture that faith through uh, your word to us today in the book of Exodus, that we might trust you more fully, that as we encounter the difficulties in our life, the ups and downs, the seemingly random things that take place, that you are working in it. 
that you don't sweat the details, but you've got a plan for our lives as well, and you are working all things together for our good. And ultimately, Father, that we see your purpose in calling a redeemer and bringing an intermediary uh, between us and you, even the person, Jesus Christ, who will one day bring us to that ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And let us continue.